Well, good morning to you. It is Eric Erickson here. The Eric Erickson Show across the state of Georgia, six after the hour. The phone number, if you want to be a part of the program, 877-97-ERIC, 877-973-7425. I got to begin with real frustration on the way the Iran situation is being covered. First of all, the media and the Democrats combined, you would think they have never, ever heard the Iranians chant death to America that is somehow new to them. Uh, The Iranian parliament uh, met in special session over the weekend in, in Islam Saturday or Friday, rather. Friday is the Sabbath. Growing up in Dubai, we would have Friday and Saturday off from school. Uh, Muslims, their Sabbath was on a Friday, Jews on a Saturday, and Seventh-day Adventists. And then on Sunday, uh, the the Christians, uh, ex- excluding the Seventh-day Adventists. And it, they met on, I believe it was Saturday, the Iranian parliament did, and they began chanting death to America in their parliamentary session. And this was groundbreaking news, according to members of the media. Uh, have they not been paying attention for the last 40 years? It's like uh, the news only happened. And, you know, this is part of the frustration. In, in all honesty, it is one of my deep frustrations with the American media and how they cover things. It's as if the news for the older, for the, the 30 and 40-somethings in the media, the news began in uh, 2000 with Bush v. Gore. George Jimmy McBush Hitler, McBush Hitler Halliburton stealing the race from, from Al Gore. What's old is new again. And the younger set of journalists in their, their 20s and 30s, uh, history began with the election of Barack Obama, and they are clueless about anything American before that. And anything that deviates from Barack Obama is somehow not American because it did not exist in their worldview beforehand. It, it's striking to me the way this plays out and the way old things are new again. Uh, the Iranian parliament chants death to America in a parliamentary session, and the news media says this is some sort of major thing. This has been happening for 40 years. For 40 years, the Iranian parliament has been chanting death to America, and they've been compelling people with guns to their head uh, to get out onto the streets and do the same thing. To, to say this is something new is bizarre. Uh, over the, the last 72 to 96 hours, the amount of people uh, in the media who have spread stories that are simply not true or are grossly distorted from the truth has been staggering. In fact, rarely do I work on the weekend, and I felt compelled Saturday night to push out a story noting how the media was lying about the vice president of the United States. Mike Pence on Friday noted that uh, General Qasem Soleimani, the Iranian general who we blew up last week, authorized the ni- 10 of the 9-11 hijackers to travel to Afghanistan through Iran and not have their passport stamped. So you go from Saudi Arabia to Afghanistan, your passport gets stamped in both locations, and you can uh, see the, the transit through where they're headed. Well, if you're going from Saudi Arabia to Iran, the Iranians would not stamp their passports on their way into a, into Afghanistan. So essentially what was happening is they would get us they don't you don't get a stamp when you leave a country, you get a stamp when you enter a country. So the Saudi terrorists, the 9/11 terrorists could go from Saudi Arabia to Iran. When you get to Iran, normally your passport is stamped and you enter the country and you go somewhere else and they can see, "Hey, this person's been to Iran." Well, 
that's not what happened. They would go from Saudi Arabia to Iran. Iran would not stamp their passport, and then they would go across the border by car or sometimes by plane into Afghanistan, but typically it was by car. They would avoid checkpoints that would require them to have their passports stamped in Iran, and there was no trace of them going back and forth to Afghanistan. The 9-11 Commission report actually documents this. I want to read you some of the 9-11 Commission report. First, let me read you uh, what Vice President Pence uh, said about General Soleimani. General Soleimani assisted in the clandestine travel to Afghanistan of 10 of the 12 terrorists who carried out the uh, the September 11th terrorist attacks in the United States. Now, uh, he got the 12 wrong. It was more than that. But uh, here's what the 9-11 Commission report says. Intelligence indicates the persistence of contacts between Iranian security officials and senior al-Qaeda figures after bin Laden's return to Afghanistan. Khalad has said that Iran made a concerted effort to strengthen relations with al-Qaeda after the 2000 attack on the USS Cole, but was rebuffed because bin Laden did not want to alienate his supporters in Saudi Arabia. Khalad and other detainees have described the willingness of Iranian officials to facilitate travel of al-Qaeda members through Iran on their way to and from Afghanistan. For example, Iranian border inspectors would be told not to place telltale stamps in the passports of these travelers. Such arrangements were particularly beneficial to Saudi members of al-Qaeda. Our knowledge of the international travels of the al-Qaeda operatives selected for the 9-11 operation remains fragmentary, but we now have evidence suggesting 8 to 10 of the 14 Saudi muscle operatives traveled into or out of Iran between October of 2000 and February of 2001. Who is in charge of Iranian intelligence and Quds forces at the time? General Soleimani. Now, here's page 241 of the uh, 9-11 Commission report. There is strong evidence, this is a direct quote, there is strong evidence Iran facilitated the transit of al-Qaeda members into and out of Afghanistan before 9-11 and that some of these were future 9-11 hijackers. There is also circumstantial evidence that senior Hezbollah operatives were closely tracking the travel of some of these future muscle hijackers into Iran on November in November of 2000. What did Mike Pence accuse General Soleimani of doing? The vice president says Soleimani, quote, direct quote from his tweet, assisted in the clandestine travel to Afghanistan of 10 of the terrorists who carried out the September 11th terrorist attack in the United States. That's true. That that is absolutely true. Again, here is the 9-11 Commission report. There's strong evidence Iran facilitated the transit of al-Qaeda members into and out of Afghanistan before 9-11. Our knowledge of the international travels are fragmentary, but we have evidence suggesting 8 to 10 of them traveled into and out of Iran between October 2000 and February of 2001, and Iranian border inspectors were told to not place telltale stamps in the passports of these travelers. Who would make that call in Iran? General Soleimani was the person in charge of making that call. That is not in dispute by anyone except the New York Times, the LA Times, and MSNBC, all of whom are calling BS on Mike Pence, saying he's lying. Let me read you from the LA Times. Uh, To link Soleimani, one of Iran's highest-ranking officials with direct involvement in 9-11, is flawed on many levels, says Osama Khalil, an associate professor of history at Syracuse University. The first inaccuracy is the number of hijackers. The correct number is 19, not 12. A Pence spokeswoman later wrote on Twitter, Pence had meant that 12 of the 19 transited through Afghanistan and that 10 of those 12 were assisted by Soleimani. 
A sociology professor at Dartmouth College said there's scant evidence to back up the claim. Where is the evidence and who were these 10 people, she asked. So the LA Times quotes a sociology professor to say, where's the evidence and who were these 10 people? I just read you the 9-11 Commission report, which documents that 10 people who were 9-11 hijackers went into and out of Iran. And then, oh, by the way, the LA Times says the 9-11 Commission report doesn't mention Soleimani, therefore it can't be true. Um, you know, that's like me saying that the article two of the constitution, uh, can't, you can't say the article two of the constitution wasn't designed around George Washington because the founders didn't mention him in the constitution. It's historic fact that the constitutional founders and drafters look to George Washington as the model for article two, which is why article two is so thin uh, compared to the other articles in, in the constitution, because they presumed that George Washington would define the role. That's historic fact, but it's not in the constitution. His name is not referenced. Uh, therefore, based on this logic, uh, I couldn't say that uh, because it's not in there. The fact that Soleimani is not in the 9-11 Commission report is irrelevant when it comes to Iran because Soleimani is the guy who called the shots. He's the guy who would have had to sign off on it. And that's not in dispute, by the way, by anybody. But the LA Times quotes a sociology professor instead of quoting the 9-11 Commission. Now, here's the thing. The 9-11 Commission report does go on to say, we found no evidence, this is a direct quote, we found no evidence that Iran or Hezbollah was aware of the planning of what later became the 9-11 attack, but neither were the hijackers aware of what they were plotting. So in other words, they didn't know that it was 9-11, but they knew Al-Qaeda was plotting, and, and that's what Mike Pence said. Soleimani assisted in the clandestine travel to Afghanistan of 10 of the 12 terrorists who carried out the September 11th terrorist attacks. That is factually true. And yet the media is so much more interested in attacking the president and vice president than telling the truth that they said he's lying. And that's not it. That's not just it. CNN over the weekend rushed out with a dire warning from the Joint Chiefs of Staff uh, telling that they told Congress that Americans should be prepared for an imminent attack from Iran. They selectively quoted the chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff at CNN. I'm not going to play the audio for you because I know how people are going to hear the audio and think it's real. Uh, CNN, though, pushed a story that the chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff uh, said that an attack from Iran was imminent. Actually, what he said is that they are expecting a response from Iran. But Americans should not worry. CNN, by the way, also decided that it's not worth believing the intelligence. You know, this is one of the most amazing things. For the last, what, for the last three years, uh, regularly on CNN and MSNBC, the New York Times, the LA Times, uh, the Chicago Tribune, you name the outlet, they've been attacking the president of the United States for not believing the intelligence community. And now they've all come forward and said, hey, um, we don't we need to see the evidence. We don't believe the evidence. That's right. You've got the American media that has savaged the president for three years for not believing the American intelligence community now saying they don't believe the intelligence community. That's kind of shocking. By the way, um, Mark Warner from Virginia. He's a senator. He's the ranking Democrat on the intelligence committee. When it comes to the intelligence that we had that Soleimani was planning a major operation against the United States, this is a Democrat. This is Mark Warner, not a friend of the president. Um, I want to focus on this on this threat um, that and, and you heard what the secretary of state said there, how you've been briefed about 
what this threat was. How imminent does it seem? And is it any different than what Soleimani's been doing over the last decade? I accept the notion that there was a real threat. He accepts the notion there was a real threat. That's that's Mark Warner, that there was a real threat. Well, who who is skeptical of it? Well, here's Katie Turr from MSNBC, a network that has spent countless hours. She herself spent countless hours uh, criticizing the president for not believing the intelligence community. The president now comes out and believes the intelligence community. And listen to this exchange with John Podhoritz. They shot down a drone. Trump almost pulled off a military strike against them and pulled back at the last minute. They they shot holes in tankers. I'm not arguing any of that. I'm wondering. I'm wondering if, if going after the second in command in Iraq, if there was a plan to go after the second in command in Iraq, which would in Iran. which I'm sorry yeah. in Iran, which would 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 be akin, people are saying, to going after our defense secretary, something like that. Well, is if it? You is want it, to call our defense secretary a terrorist who is responsible? There for the are people death in the Middle East who would say that. They might, and they can say whatever it is they want to say. Then there are the facts, which are that they, you know, 500,000 people have died in Syria as a result of Iranian meddling and support for Bashar al-Assad in his civil war against his own people. Hundreds of thousands of civilians have died during the wars that we've been waging in the Middle what East. Is, okay, so I, that, I mean, if what you want to say is that we don't have the moral standing to strike somebody who is no, threatening us. No, I'm not saying and, that, and, I am, but I am questioning the positions. evidence that I'm questioning the evidence. I'm being skeptical of the evidence but because not, they haven't shown it to but, me. But the, and I, I'm being skeptical because of the hangover that this country is under but from 2003. So she's questioning the evidence, questioning the evidence. Uh, notice how uh, the evidence always has to work against the Trump administration with the members of the media, that uh, if the evidence suggests that President Trump was right to act, perhaps the evidence is wrong. If the evidence suggests the president was wrong to act, then perhaps the evidence was right. Uh, th- this is like uh, we're in Salem, we're in witch trials right now, Monty Python-esque witch trials. If the president drowns, he was telling the truth. If the president floats, he's a liar. That's where we are with the media when it comes to how they're assessing the Iranian situation. You know, back in 1984, when I was a kid, I remember the speech. It was the very first political um, political rally political event i i remember i was in fourth grade in 1984 i was about to start fourth grade in 1984 uh and you had the republican national convention i was in houston at my cousin's house i remember I, we were they were big democrats my parents were republicans we were on the floor we were watching the republican national convention uh, in 1984 i believe it was in texas i think and Gene Kirkpatrick spoke. Gene Kirkpatrick was Ronald Reagan's ambassador to the United Nations. And I remember the speech. The Democrats were meeting in San Francisco. And Gene Kirkpatrick, or were they meeting in San Diego? I can't remember. Anyway, Gene Kirkpatrick gave a speech, and she lamented the, the Blame America First Democrats meeting in San Francisco. And I remember that speech as a little kid. And I pulled the video up, and it is as I remembered. It's on YouTube. I may have to find it during the commercial break. Uh, the Blame America First crowd, uh, the, the Democrats in San Francisco, and the, the Blame America First crowd, they are now totally in charge of the Democratic Party and the media. I mean, we are in, in witch trials for the president here with, with MSNBC, CNN, and the like. If the evidence works for the president, uh, then the president is is a witch. If the evidence works against the president, well, let him drown. It just, I mean, the, the whole thing is nuts. 
the president comes out and drowns, then he's telling the truth. The president comes out and he lies. Well, he's floating. Therefore, we've got to impeach him, execute him, do something. It's just he can't win with the media. They are absolutely savagely out to get him. For three years, they've attacked the president for not believing the intelligence community. And now suddenly they're attacking the intelligence community. By the way, you know who's in the intelligence community? There were a series of anti-Trump stories that came out over the weekend uh, from the New York Times and elsewhere. Uh, they were all based on sources within the, in the intelligence community disputing everything that the chairman of the Joint Chiefs, the Joint Chiefs, the Secretary of State, the Secretary of Defense, and the like, everything the top people are all saying, these sources are disputed it from the intelligence community. You know who's in the intelligence community who's a reliable source for the media who they love? The whistleblower who's been trying to get President Trump since day one. Yes, the whistleblower. He's back at the CIA. I wonder if he's one of these sources. Welcome back. It is Eric Erickson here. So over the weekend, or this morning, actually, at The Resurgent, if you go to theresurgent.com, I've got this up. Uh, I, I want to continue now. All the things that the media has gotten wrong in the last 96 hours. Um, CNN had on an analyst saying that all Americans are now targets of Iran. While I guess technically true, that's been true for 40 years. It's not some change in position with the Iranians, uh, but uh, there's, there's more as well. The New York times had a big story over the weekend from a well-respected reporter. The reporter essentially is put at risk the lives of human intelligence operatives because there's not signal intelligence that would get this. It had to be human intelligence. Here is why the administration says that there is a um, that there was an imminent threat that Soleimani was planning. Whatever it was that he was doing, it was required of him to go to the Ayatollah Khamenei and get permission for the thing he wanted to do, whatever whatever attack was coming, he had to go present himself before the Ayatollah and get permission. That means it had to have been a big deal. We know this from a number of sources, and someone leaked that to the New York Times. I suspect that there are very few people who would have known Soleimani had to go to the Ayatollah, and therefore... Uh, those people will probably, their lives will be put in jeopardy by this leak to the New York Times. And again, the leak to the New York Times was designed to undermine the president's claim of intelligence. There were also those within the intelligence and military apparatus who disagreed with killing Soleimani and thought it would exacerbate the situation. Uh, other reporters helpfully suggested that the entire military establishment was opposed to taking out Soleimani, which is not true. You know who else uh, had something to say on this? This is Jay Johnson, President Obama's Secretary of Homeland Security. Before you were Homeland Security Secretary, you, you were counselor at the Defense Department. So. Correct. Uh, Explain for viewers, why does Mike Pompeo keep saying terrorist? There is a legal reason he keeps saying the word terrorist, isn't it? Uh, no, not necessarily. Okay. Uh, <laughs> if you believe everything that our government is saying about General Soleimani, he was a lawful military objective. Mm -hmm. And uh, the president, under his constitutional authority as commander-in-chief, had ample domestic legal authority to, to take him out without an additional congressional authorization. Um, the, whether he was a terrorist mm -hmm. or a general in a military force that was engaged in armed attacks against our people, he was a lawful military objective. He was a lawful military objective. A lawful military objective. 
Now, why is the media running so many stories? And by the way, you should know the New York Times reporter who ran that big story about the military concluded uh, in a tweet storm about it that this probably was about impeachment. That's where the Democrats are going. Why are they doing this? You need to understand really why when we come back, I'll explain it to you. I promise, I promise I'm getting back to sending the recipes. I took a week or two off. If you want to get the recipes, uh, you can text the word recipe to the number 33777. Uh, what happens is you get an email back uh, or you get a text back saying what's your email address. You, you text back your email address and boom, you're signed up for the recipe list and uh, <laughs> midweek on most weeks, if I remember, I send out a recipe. You don't get ads. You don't get anything like that. Uh, the list isn't for sale. It's just a way to connect with listeners over food. Cause, um, have you seen me? <laughs> I have been going to CrossFit though. I've lost 10 pounds. Uh, I, I had a personal best for the deadlift, uh, this past Friday. Um, in any event now we, we need to get into why the media is so fixated with, attacking the president more than telling the truth. For example, if you're like me, I was in church yesterday and got the push alert on my phone between Sunday school and the sanctuary that um, the Iranian or the Iraqi parliament had voted to throw the Americans out of Iraq. And it's not true, actually. The American media got it wrong. It was a symbolic vote. The parliament lacked a quorum because the Kurds and others were were boycotting the session. Uh, but it was still a symbolic vote asking the prime minister to come up with a timetable. The prime minister backed the resolution. Uh, you know, timetable in the Middle East is code for not going to happen. There's been a, a timetable since 1984 on getting Hezbollah out of, out of Lebanon. There have been multiple timetables. In, in the Middle East, everyone understands a, a timetable starts an indefinite period of time that makes everybody look good without actually doing anything. And anyone who studies Middle East politics knows this. Have I studied Middle East politics? No. Am I an expert at it? No. Have I stayed at a Holiday Inn Express? No. So how do I know this? Well, because I've read the experts and I lived in the Middle East. And the experts on the Middle East are pointing out that when a Middle Eastern politician proposes a timetable for something to happen, it means he doesn't want it to happen, but he's got to save face. And that's what he does. Uh, it, it's just the media reporting on this has been atrocious. And it's all because most of the national security reporters out there either came from the Obama administration or are friends with people from the Obama administration, like that idiot Ben Rhodes, who doesn't get anything right and openly bragged about uh, lying to the American people to try to get the Iran deal passed. I want to play this media montage of the media heralding Barack Obama, the conquering hero, by getting the Iran deal passed, a deal he could not even get the Senate to ratify because of the objections of Democrats. Let's not forget that. Uh, the, the Iran deal is called the Iran deal and not the Iran treaty because Barack Obama did not have enough Democrat votes in the Senate to get it passed. Today, the United States has reached a historic understanding with Iran. But we have a historic opportunity to prevent the spread of nuclear weapons. Iran has also agreed to the most robust and intrusive inspections and transparency regime ever negotiated for any nuclear program in history. We rallied the world to impose the toughest sanctions in history. 
We are following the breaking news here of this historic understanding with Iran. Uh, it is definitely an historic um, uh, uh, moment. It, it, is, um, uh, it is a historic agreement, frankly. A historic understanding and, quote, good deal. But there is, of course, still much work to be done. A lot of what happened today does not happen every day. This was a historic deal on a historic day, even though it's not done yet. This historic day in international relations and this potentially historic deal. So it is a very historic deal and it changes, it has the potential if we do the deal on June 30th of changing the way global gravity works. Yes, I don't want to let this moment go by. It is a historic thing we are witnessing. World leaders reach a framework for a historic deal. This is the most strictly governed nuclear accord of any nuclear program ever in history. This is a masterful chess player back in, back in the game. And President Obama has done a masterful job. The president has handled this brilliantly. In, in moving that needle. It's an extraordinarily difficult needle, but he's moving it and, it, and it's breathtaking to watch. The president has put a plan on the table that controls it for 15 years. It's a fabulous a piece of work. So this is indeed a historic day. But it is historic, no doubt. An historic day. Coming up, the historic framework. Indeed, an historic day. You here. bet. We've got more news on today's historic deal with Iran. Historic potential deal. We'll have more on this historic day. Historic news out of Switzerland. They had the Republican reaction to the historic nuclear agreement. And while today's agreement is historic, probably the biggest breakthrough in this historic agreement today. Iran has agreed to an unprecedented unprecedented level of inspection. Such a deal has never been negotiated in the history of the nuclear age before. This was a historic opportunity. President Obama announced a historic breakthrough. This is a big, a historic moment. A major historic moment. How historic is this? And if it sticks in June, and it should. If we uh, get this in of June, this is big as Nixon goes to China. It changes the game. America is back after a lot of bad years. <laughs> America's back. It changes the game. Uh, now let's play Secretary of State Mike Pompeo, who made the Sunday talk show rounds yesterday. Pompeo, by the way, West Point grad. Uh, this is the first time going back before Reagan, where the Secretary of State and Secretary of Defense are both West Point grads. Uh, here's Pompeo. We suffered from eight years of Iranian support from America. We gave them billions of dollars. We gave them resources. We allowed countries to trade with them, to build up their economy. What we are now having to correct for is the enormous economic activity that took place during this Iranian nuclear deal that President Trump rightly got out of in May of 2018. It's taken a little bit of time and it will continue to take time, but we are going to restore deterrence. We, we just had a big hill to climb up, Chuck. Uh, we'd seen hundreds of thousands of people killed in Syria. Millions have to depart the region. We'd seen Le Lebanese Hezbollah, Hamas, the PIJ in Gaza Strip, all of these terror organizations, the Shia militias, the Shia militias that we are now yeah. challenged to push back against today, all underwritten by American policy in the Obama administration. We've flipped the switch. We're draining those resources. We're going to protect in America and keep American people safe. I'm curious. Yeah. And the media is blowing him up for saying that. And again, the reason is very simple. you got to remember that the Obama administration used reporters to sell the Iran deal. Remember in 2011 when Barack Obama wanted to withdraw from Iraq, uh, the media was justifying it in every which way they possibly could, justifying removal of American soldiers from Iraq because Barack Obama said so. And now suddenly the media doesn't want to do that. I, I, I want to read you a couple of things uh, just to really drive this point home on, uh, and if you want to go to theresurgent.com, 
I've I've got the piece at the resurgent. You can follow the links. It's it's near the top of the site. But I, I want to take you back to this CNN story from 2000, uh, 2000, looks like 2015. Uh, yes, 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 yes. Um, 2015, CNN uh, from Davos, Switzerland. Secretary of State John Kerry acknowledged to CNBC Thursday that some of the money Iran receives in sanctions relief would go to groups considered terrorists. When asked about whether some of the $150 billion in sanctions relief to Iran would go to terrorist groups, Kerry reiterated that after settling debts, Iran would receive closer to $55 billion. He conceded some of that could go to groups considered terrorists, saying there was nothing the United States could do to prevent that. I think some of it will end up in the hands of the Iranian Revolutionary Guard Corps or other entities, some of which are labeled terrorists. You know, to some degree, I'm not going to sit here and tell you that every component of that can be prevented. So, in other words, the money would go to terror groups, the Iranian Revolutionary Guard, Hezbollah, and others. And then there's another story. This is from 2015 again. The headline from Politico, the secret backstory of how Obama let Hezbollah off the hook. In its determination to secure a nuclear deal with Iran, the Obama administration derailed an ambitious law enforcement campaign targeting drug trafficking by the Iranian-backed terrorist group Hezbollah, even as it was funneling cocaine into the United States. The campaign, dubbed Project Cassandra, was launched in 2008 after the Drug Enforcement Agency amassed evidence Hezbollah had transformed itself from a Middle East-focused military and political organization into an international crime syndicate that some investigators believe was collecting a billion dollars a year from drug and weapons trafficking, money laundering, and other criminal activities. Over the next eight years, agents working out of a top-secret DEA facility in Chantilly, Virginia, used wiretaps, undercover operations, and informants to map Hezbollah's illicit networks with the help of 30 U.S. and foreign security agencies. They followed cocaine shipments from Latin America to West Africa onto Europe and the Middle East and others through Venezuela and Mexico to the United States. They tracked the river of dirty cash as it was laundered by, among other tactics, buying American used cars and shipping them to Africa. And with the help of some key cooperating witnesses, the agents traced the conspiracy they believe to the innermost circle of Hezbollah and its state sponsors in Iran. But as Project Cassandra reached higher into the hierarchy of the conspiracy, Obama administration officials threw an increasingly insurmountable series of roadblocks in its way, according to interviews with dozens of participants who in many cases spoke for the first time about events shrouded in secrecy and a review of government documents and court records. When Project Cassandra leaders sought approval for some significant investigations, prosecutions, arrests, and financial sanctions, officials at the Justice and Treasury Department's delayed or rejected their requests. Why? Because Obama wanted a deal with Iran. Now, let me read you this paragraph. The Justice Department declined requests by Project Cassandra and other authorities to file criminal charges against major players, such as Hezbollah's high-profile envoy to Iran, a Lebanese bank that allegedly laundered billions in alleged drug profits, and a central player 
in a U.S.-based cell of Iranian paramilitary Quds force. That's right, a U.S.-based cell of Iranian paramilitary Quds force. Who's in charge of Quds? That would be, well, was Soleimani. And the United States of America, under Barack Obama, shut down the whole investigation, made it close up, and made them stop going after paramilitary forces of Iranians in the United States. Why? Because they were so desperate for a nuclear deal with Iran. This is really damning stuff. It is just absurd that they would do this. And by the way, a uh, part of this you need to know, John Brennan, you know John Brennan who goes out of his way to attack the president? John Brennan said he wanted to build up moderate elements within Hezbollah. This is still in the political article. Hezbollah is a very interesting organization, Brennan told a Washington conference, saying it had evolved from a purely terrorist organization to a militia and ultimately a political party with representatives in the Lebanese parliament. There are certainly the element of Hezbollah that are truly a concern for us, what they're doing and what we need to do is find ways to diminish their influence and try to build up more moderate elements. In practice, the administration's willingness to envision a new role for Hezbollah in the Middle East, combined with its desire for a negotiated settlement to Iran's nuclear program, translated into a reluctance to move aggressively against top Hezbollah operatives. There's your Barack Obama administration. This is the administration that the media is defending. This is the administration that could do no wrong. This is the administration that negotiated the Iran deal, where the Iranians, by the way, weren't keeping their end of the nuclear deal. The media is almost celebratory today that Iran has said they're no longer going to honor the 2015 Iran deal on nuclear weapons. It's all Donald Trump's fault. They weren't doing it in the beginning. They weren't doing it in the process. The Iranians were not complying. And this is all to protect their precious. Barack Obama was the precious. The media is, is emotionally invested in the mythology of a scandal-free Obama administration. It is an administration that sent billions of dollars to Iran so that Iran could build up terror cells around the world, including here in the United States, and then denied the ability of law enforcement of the United States to go after them. If there is an attack, keep keep that, that story in mind from Politico. If something, God forbid, bad does happen quickly here in the United States as an Iranian response, keep in mind, we knew in the Obama administration there were Iranian paramilitary cells in the United States, and they stopped the DEA from going after them. They stopped law enforcement from going after them. Now, they expelled them, supposedly, from the United States, but they were here. And the Obama administration refused to aggressively go after them through legal means because they were desperate for a deal. They wanted the deal so bad, they never bothered to assess whether or not the deal was good. They knew the media would sell whatever they came up with, so they didn't even have to get a good deal. They just had to get the deal, and it would be heralded as life-changing, historic, game-changing. And that's exactly what the media did. And it's all starting to unravel. Again, we have intelligence that General Qassam Soleimani was organizing a major plot against the United States. Do you recall that the media attacked George W. Bush? 
because George W. Bush, in the eight months he was in office before 9-11, did not put together all of the Clinton administration intelligence. All of the, the nebulous and obscure intelligence all strung along in different directions. He was not able to put that together and say, aha, 9-11's coming, we got to stop it. But here comes President Trump with all of this intelligence about the Iranians planning something big against the United States, so big that Soleimani's got to fly to Iran and get the Ayatollah's permission. And the very media that attacked George W. Bush for not stringing the, the putting all the intelligence together and stopping 9-11 is now attacking Donald Trump for putting all the intelligence together and stopping Soleimani. They attacked George W. Bush for not accurately reading the tea leaves. They're attacking Donald Trump for accurately reading the tea leaves. And it's all about protecting the legacy of the Obama administration. Our media in the United States is more emotionally invested in beating Donald Trump than accurately reporting on what's going on in the Middle East. And that should be appalling to all of us. There are some really good journalists out there who are trying to play it straight. And they are overwhelmed by even the New York Times respected reporter on American intelligence saying, hey, this probably was about impeachment. They are just out to get the president. They're not out to get the truth. Welcome back. If you would like to be a part of the program, the phone number is 877-973-7425. That's 877-973-7425. Uh, happy to take your phone calls on this and the other news of the day. Uh, when we come back at the top of the hour, I want to spend some time on some Georgia news. Brian Kemp uh, is willing to talk about altering the tax credits for the Hollywood film industry here in Georgia. Uh, among other things. Uh, Kelly Leffler is going to be sworn in today by Vice President Pence as well. We will talk about all of that. Uh, you know, somebody who is weighed in on this, this is, this is entirely frustrating to me. The NBA and, and, and various woke athletes like Colin Kaepernick refuse to take a position on the Chinese situation with Hong Kong and China operating concentration camps. The Chinese actually do operate concentration camps uh, for Christians, Muslims, and, and other ethnic minorities. There, you, you either die or you embrace communism in these concentration camps. Uh, the Chinese situation in Hong Kong is starting to turn violent. Uh, the protesters in Hong Kong and the Chinese police increasingly escalating tensions there. And whether you're talking about Steve Kerr, the NBA, Colin Kaepernick, the like, it's complicated. They, they can't offer an opinion on it because it's complicated. And yet, somehow, Middle Eastern turmoil is not complicated. And they're all willing to condemn the president. Uh, Colin Kaepernick uh, basically saying that the, the United States has always gone after his black and brown brothers in the Middle East, and, and it's appalling, uh, trying to turn it into a race issue. Colin Kaepernick is not a smart man, is he? I mean, it, it, this is a, an exceedingly arrogant man who is also a dim bulb. You, you had Ricky uh, Gervais or whatever his name is at, at the um, Golden Globes last night, savaging Hollywood, telling them not to take political positions in their speeches because they're less educated than Greta Thunberg. And of course, they they did. They got up and, and defended abortion rights and the like. Uh, but, but same with Kaepernick. He's not a bright man, and Nike now subsidizes his entire existence. It, it is, uh, based on the left's logic, it is safe to say that it is Nike that is taking the position that uh, Donald Trump committed a racist attack in Iraq because that that's their their lead figure Colin Kaepernick that's his position 
if you're a Christian and you take a, a stance on um, the, the alphabet gang that favors Christian orthodoxy over the alphabet gang community, uh, Nike's going to drop you in a heartbeat. But if you attack the United States as an athlete for Nike, they're okay with it. The NBA won't wager an opinion on on China and Hong Kong and concentration camps in China. But if you want to attack the American military or Donald Trump, God bless you. The NBA is happy to have you. It is incredibly offensive. And it is all part of, well, part of it is Trump derangement syndrome, but part of it as well is just the media is totally in the tank for the left these days. Unless you listen to CNN, here's Brian Stutler and David Frum. majority of the country as his enemies. How can he lead a United Nation to war? Yeah, he has been talking about Haiti and the state of New York and things like that recently. You said on this program a year ago that relative to his performance, Trump actually gets really favorable, flattering yeah. news coverage. That it should be more critical. Do you still believe that? Yeah, no, it's just, it's just amazing. I mean, there is a, a whole network that exists to support the president's ego needs. Um, and, and on the na- networks like, like this one that try to be, try to be fair, um, look, there, there are generous contracts paid to people who will come on uh, CNN's air to defend the president. Um, and I, I understand why you do that, but um, it's, not a, it's not a favor he would ever return to you. Uh, you know, actually, CNN has mostly gotten rid of all of the pro-Trump voices. Um, in fact, I used to be on CNN and, uh, they rarely have me on anymore ever since I said I would support the president. It's bizarre. George issues though. When we come back, I don't even need to read a script for this. Uh, quip is my sponsor this week for the podcast. And I don't need to read a, a script because I'm a user and I've been a long time user of quip. I love quip. If you don't know what quip is, it is an uh, electric toothbrush. It only takes just a AAA battery and they send you the AAA battery. So you don't even have to get a AAA battery every three months on a subscription. You can get a new brush head to keep your brush head up to date. It pulses every 30 seconds. So you get an even clean for two minutes in your mouth. It turns itself off. It's just so well designed and, it's very reasonably priced compared to a lot of toothbrushes out there on the market that compete with it. You can go to getquip.com slash Eric right now. You'll even get your first brush head refill pack for free. So you get your first brush head refill pack for free at getquip.com slash Eric. That's G-E-T-Q-U-I-P.com slash Eric. Get in the healthy habit of brushing your teeth the way your dentist wants. Make it easy by getting a Quip. Quip electric toothbrushes. My wife uses it. I use it. My kids use it. It really is that good. You will like it in your family, and you will make sure you get a great clean. Join 3 million healthy mouths by getting Quip today for just $25 at getquip.com slash Eric. Hello and welcome. It is Eric Erickson here, the Eric Erickson Show across the state of Georgia. The phone lines happen to be open, 877-97-ERIC, 877-973-7425. Glad to have you with me. Uh, look, I, I want to get back into the Kasumsula money, the, the fallout from him. There are a number of things that have happened, but there is some Georgia news as well. I, I spent the entire first hour on uh, the Soleimani uh, fallout, and it, I want to get into some Georgia news here now. We will circle back to that. I'm happy to take your phone calls on the issue. 877-97-ERIC, 877-973-7425. There is some news, though, you need to know. Uh, A federal judge, uh, Steve Jones, he's actually an Obama appointee, 
has ruled that Stacey Abrams Voting Rights Advocacy Group uh, is improperly asking him to interpret state law. Uh, The judge, Steve Jones, said the group hasn't proved that people who've been removed from the voter rolls, there are a hundred some odd thousand people removed by Brad Raffensperger, the Secretary of State, uh, uh, their constitutional rights uh, have not been violated. He did order the Secretary of State to do more to warn people that they've been removed. Uh, He singled out a Southwest Georgia State House District where a January 28th special election is scheduled. Voters there who've been removed have only until Monday to re-register. That deadline has now passed. The story is actually from last week. So uh, the the deadline has passed now. he, Raffensperger, you'll recall the Secretary of State, he ordered 313,000 people off the rolls. Uh, more than half of those people actually were able to be confirmed to have either moved to a different county, in their original county they were uh, deregistered, or they moved out of state or died. We were able to confirm those things. Uh, the others, uh, the Secretary of State's office tried to contact them, tried to, to give them notice. And uh, they were never able to find them. Some came forward and were saved, but the overwhelming majority of them, over 100,000 of them, uh, never heard from. Secret- uh, Stacey Abrams' group went into court and tried to uh, block it, get a court order saying that the Secretary of State could not throw those people off the voter registration rolls. And by the way, this is a lawsuit the Democrats have done in Georgia in the past. They did it in 2013 and 2015. They tried to prevent this from happening. All the Republicans are doing is complying with a state law passed by Democrats. And yet they do this every time because, uh, again, mythology has become so important to the American public. You know what? Okay. Pause. I am going to move back to Soleimani indirectly, tangentially. I'm still aggravated, and, and I'm aggravated because I like him, and and they haven't apologized. And that frustrates me that there has been no apology. Uh, I want to go back to the audio I played last week from Meet the Press. It happened over Christmas, uh, the weekend of uh, before Christmas. This is Chuck Todd reading a letter to the editor on ML, on Meet the Press. I want to read you guys a letter to the editor that we found in the Lexington Herald Leader. It was a fascinating attempt at trying to explain why um, some people support President Trump. Here's what he says. Why do good people support Trump? It's because... People have been trained from childhood to believe in fairy tales. This set their minds up to accept things that make them feel good. The more fairy tales and lies he tells, the better they feel. Show me a person who believes in Noah's Ark, and I will show you a Trump voter. It, 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 look, this gets at something, Dean, that, that my executive producer likes to say is, hey, voters want to be lied to sometimes. They, they, don't, they don't always love being told hard truths. They don't like being told hard truths. They like being lied to. Y'all, this morning... It started yesterday. CARE, the the radical Islamic group in D.C., started a rumor, started a conspiracy theory that Customs and Border Patrol rounding up uh, Iranian-Americans, including Americans who are of Iranian descent, Customs and Border Patrol are rounding them up and detaining them. Members of Congress, Democratic members of Congress, Barbara Lee and others, have started recirculating this rumor that Customs and Border Patrol are rounding up Iranian-Americans. And Customs and Border Patrol actually had to get on social media and say this isn't true. And other conservatives have come out and, and other reporters have come out and said this isn't true. And do you know the response from the left? Prove it. That That's the response from the left. 
is prove it. Prove the negative. Prove that what we say isn't happening or prove that what we say is happening isn't actually happening. How do, how do you prove that? The authorities have come out and said it isn't happening. Reporters have come out and said it isn't happening. Conservatives come out and said it isn't happening. The Trump administration has come out and said they've never given this order. No one has come forward to say they've been detained. And yet the left accepts it as fact that it's happening. And when you tell them it's not true, they, they say, well, prove it. Prove it's not true. And yet it's Chuck Todd and Meet the Press and various folks at CNN and the editorial pages of newspapers across the country who are lecturing Americans on how Trump voters want to be lied to. And Trump voters believe mythology. And, and Trump voters, they, they, they need the myth. They, they need the lie. They can't handle the truth. Donald Trump doesn't like the truth. They can't handle the truth. This is, this is circulated in the media. This is a lecture. Remember, CNN had a whole ad campaign on apples versus bananas. And, and this is an apple. This is an apple. You can tell me it's a banana. You can tell me all day it's a banana. But it's not a banana. It's an apple. See, this was CNN's ad campaign. And they lecture Republicans constantly on being lied to. And yet, here comes the left, here come Democratic members of Congress lying to the public, circulating conspiracy theories, Alex Jones-esque conspiracy theories. But it's only Republicans who want to be lied to. It's only Republicans who need to be lectured about the truth. You have the media defending Soleimani. Elizabeth Warren actually came out last week and called him a murderer and a terrorist, and the left got so mad at her she had to walk it back. I kid you not, over the weekend, Elizabeth Warren had to walk back her criticisms of Soleimani, saying that he was a murderer and a terrorist, and said she had to hack the Trump administration. She could not go forward uh, with her criticisms of Soleimani, a murderer. She couldn't do it because the left got mad at her for telling the truth about him. Now you've got the intelligence community has come out, the Joint Chiefs of Staff, the Secretary of Defense, the Secretary of State, the, the high-ranking authorities within the CIA and the National Security Apparatus of the United States, all saying Soleimani was planning something big against the United States. So big, in fact, according to the New York Times, he had to go get permission from the Ayatollah Khomeini to actually carry out whatever he wanted to do. And the Democrats are out saying, we, we don't see evidence of this. Well, where's the evidence? We should question the intelligence. For three years, they've been yelling at Donald Trump for questioning the intelligence community, and suddenly it's fair game to, to question the intelligence community because Donald Trump put points on the board. Here's, here's Joe Biden. The question is, was the risk of assassinating him worth, or if in fact it turns out they had no evidence that there was a planned major attack, then it's just an assassination. If there is, and we don't know yet, if there was an immediate threat that he posed and something was going to happen, then it wasn't an assassination. Well, it wasn't. But Joe Biden's not willing to believe the intelligence community. And, you know, here's Elizabeth Warren and, and her crazy conspiracy theory that's now been picked up by reporters. I think the question that we ought to focus on is why now? You know, why not a month ago? Why not a month from now? And the answer from the administration seems to be they can't keep their story straight on this. They pointed in all different directions. And, you know, the last time we watched them do this was the summer over Ukraine. As soon as people started asking about the conversation between Donald Trump and the president of Ukraine and why aid had been held up to Ukraine, the administration did the same thing. They pointed in all directions about what was going on. 
And of course, what emerged then is this was Donald Trump just trying to advance Donald Trump's own political mm. agenda, not the agenda of the United States of America. So what happens right now? Next week, the president of the United States could be facing an impeachment trial in the Senate. We know he's deeply upset about that. And I think people are reasonably asking, why this moment? Why does he pick now to take this highly inflammatory, highly dangerous action that moves us closer to war? We've been at war for 20 years in the Middle East. We need to stop the war in the Middle East, not expand it. Senator, are you saying... So Elizabeth Warren, on with Jake Tapper, suggesting the president conducted this strike on Soleimani to distract from impeachment. In fact, Jake Tapper, I, I cut him off. I, I pushed the button. I shouldn't have. Jake Tapper actually says, Senator, are, are you suggesting that? Not expanding. Senator, are you suggesting that President Trump pulled the trigger and had Qasem Soleimani killed as a distraction from, from impeachment? Look, I think people are reasonably asking about the timing and why it is that the administration seems to have all kinds of different answers. <laughs> yeah. Believe the lie. Believe the lie. But it's only Republicans who do that. Uh, by the way, Chris Wallace asked Mike Pompeo about that. Some analysts suggest that the impeachment of President Trump has emboldened enemies like Iran and North Korea uh, to think that they can confront him. Do you think that as misguided as it may be, that some of our enemies think that this president is more vulnerable because of the impeachment effort? You should ask Mr. Soleimani. Oh, yep. Yep. Ask Lamani if, if the president's distracted by impeachment. And, and here comes Warren saying, oh, he did it because of impeachment. They want to believe the mythology. It's only Republicans who get lectured by the press on believing lies, but there are lots of Democrats and, and progressive activists who want to believe the lies. Now, let me pull this full circle away from Iraq and back here to Georgia. You have a, a national Democratic establishment and activists here in Georgia who believe the lie that Stacey Abrams had the election stolen from her. Hillary Clinton is on the record with that. Elizabeth Warren is on the record with that. Various reporters are on the record with that. There's no evidence of it. And they see this story about 100,000 people being thrown off the rolls in Georgia because they can't be found. By the way, it, it turns out, the, you know, the AJC, uh, or not the AJC, WSB-TV out of Atlanta, uh, the, the Secretary of State's office, for the first time, gave a list, gave out a list of all the people who were going to be thrown off the rolls. And the um, the WSB-TV in Atlanta went out into the precincts in the Atlanta area that were going to be most impacted, where most of the people were going to be thrown off the rolls. And they went house by house on the list to find the people who were going to be thrown off the rolls. And do you know what they found? They were dead people. That's why they didn't respond. Uh, the overwhelming majority of the people that uh, WSB-TV tried to find were dead. And others couldn't be found. They don't know if they moved. They don't know if they're in jail. They don't know if they're in the hospital. What? But they're, most of them are dead. And there is a mythology on the left that Stacey Abrams, the race was stolen from Stacey Abrams. The audacity of, of stealing the race from Stacey Abrams. They want to believe the lie. And here comes a federal judge, an Obama-appointed federal judge, saying, nope, can't do it, sorry. I, I can't tell the Secretary of State not to throw these people off the rolls. He has legitimate reasons under the law to throw them off the rolls. And yet, 
now suddenly he's a collaborator with the Republicans stealing the vote from Stacey Abrams. Listen, there's a real problem in the United States right now with truth, and it's on both sides. Let, let's, let, let, let us be honest with it. There are Republicans out there. There are Trump supporters who do want to believe lies, but there are a lot of Democrats who do as well. It is human nature to want to believe the lie that makes you feel good over the truth that makes you not feel good. It's not a partisan issue. As much as the media, everything these days is, is shaped in the press as partisanship. But it's not. It's human nature. Human nature, we want to believe the lie. When your significant other asks you if, if they look fat and you say no, I, I mean, listen, shit, this is survival, people. <laughs> Maybe a bad example, but you get my point. People want to believe the lie. People do want to believe the lie. And there's nothing new about it. But in this partisan age, the media obsessively, compulsively makes it all about Donald Trump. It's all Donald Trump's fault. This is something new. Uh, no, Barack Obama lied repeatedly, but the media never held him accountable for it. And these voter issues here in Georgia with Stacey Abrams, the, the, the Democrats have lied repeatedly about that loss. I talked to a reporter who told me, uh, this is a, a Georgia-based reporter, highly respected reporter, who I would say probably is slightly center-left, said he knew Stacey Abrams was going to lose. And he knew she was going to lose because shortly before the election, a major hurricane comes through the state of Georgia, wiping out homes and crops in South Georgia. Devastating farmers, sending many into bankruptcy, increasing suicides in South Georgia and farmers who are barely making it together, putting it together. The hurricane wipes out their livelihoods, their families, their homes, their crops. Increase in suicides. And what does Stacey Abrams do? She goes down to South Georgia and she tells people they, they don't have to work on farms or in the hospitality industry. They can go do something else. They can improve their lives. Insults farmers, insults the agriculture community in Georgia. And he said, you know what? She's going to lose. Because that there's a tone deafness there. One of the few reporters to, to call BS on the national media story. But national reporters, they're not here. They don't hear those reports. They, they don't talk to those reporters. They, they don't understand. They don't know. And so they believe the media mythology peddled by Democrats, whether it's about the Iran situation, whether it's about the Stacey Abrams situation, whether it's about Brian Kemp and fetal heartbeat and it's going to cost him his career and the Republicans' control of Georgia. They want to lecture you and me on lying and believing lies, and yet they are willfully, willfully willing to believe anything other than the truth. It is Eric Erickson here, The Eric Erickson Show. I am happy to take your phone calls. The phone number, if you would like to be a part of the program, 877-97-ERIC, 877-973-7425. There is other news in the state we need to get to um, beyond the Stacey Abrams stuff. Uh, Kelly Leffler is going to be sworn in today by the vice president. I'm trying to get an interview scheduled with Kelly Leffler. Her staff actually has reached out to me uh, and we'll, I'll let you guys know, you know, if you want to sign up for alerts, get the podcast of the show or even my daily email uh, that, that covers a lot of the stuff we talk about on the show. If you text the word show, to 33777, uh, you can get signed up. Uh, here's one I, I find somewhat humorous. Uh, Matt Lieberman is, so far, he's the only declared Democratic challenger to Kelly Leffler. 
Lieberman is um, he is the son of Joe Lieberman. Uh, Matt Lieberman is very progressive. He was the headmaster of a school in Atlanta. He's come out very strongly against the president, taking a very hard line progressive position. And well, I was thought it was very funny to read this today. President Trump's order to take out Kasim Soleimani was morally, constitutionally, and strategically correct. It deserves more bipartisan support than the begrudging or negative reactions it has received thus far from my fellow Democrats. The president's decision was bold and unconventional. It's understandable that the political class should have questions about it. But it isn't understandable that all the questions are being raised by Democrats and all the praise is coming from Republicans. That divided response suggests the partisanship that has infected and disabled so much of U.S. domestic policy now also determines our elected leaders' responses to major foreign policy events and national security issues. Even the killing of a man responsible for murdering hundreds of Americans and planning to kill thousands more. After World War II, Senator Arthur Vandenberg, a Michigan Republican who was chairman of the Foreign Relations Committee, formed a bipartisan partnership with President Truman that helped secure the post-war peace and greatly strengthened America's position in the Cold War. Politics stops at the water's edge, said Vandenberg, when asked why he worked so closely with a Democratic president. He added that his fellow Americans undoubtedly had earnest, honest, even vehement differences of opinion on foreign policy. But if we can keep partisan politics out of foreign affairs, it is entirely obvious that we shall speak with infinitely greater authority abroad. In their uniformly skeptical or negative reactions to Soleimani's death, Democrats are falling well below Vandenberg's standard, and I fear creating the risk that the U.S. will be seen as acting and speaking with less authority abroad at this important time. That's Joe Lieberman former vice presidential candidate for the Democrats, senator from Connecticut, friend of John McCain, and father of the progressive candidate in Georgia, Matt Lieberman, who's running for the Senate. Wonder what he thinks about his dad's op-ed. It is Eric Erickson here. Happy to hear from you. The phone number is 877-973-7425. Let's see. My computer monitor decided to turn off. Now it's back on. I can see everything. The governor has decided he is willing to work with lawmakers on uh, trimming the the tax incentives for film in Georgia. Now, yeah, let me let me put this in perspective. This is a this is a big issue here in the state of Georgia. For those of you who are out of Georgia, uh, the um, Georgia has a thriving film industry. It has a thriving film industry in part because the state created tax credits for businesses in Georgia uh, that help offset the costs of filming in Georgia. It's, it's fairly cheap to film in Georgia, and a lot of businesses get incentives for uh, for films happening in Georgia. A lot of places in Georgia have become film studios. Um, I, I know of a, a beer distributorship here in Georgia that actually built, had some land on their their lot and they made it pad ready and they built a, a facility at the beer distributorship for uh hollywood to use for filming and it, it's now it's 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 a film location but it's at a at a um it's at a distributorship for for liquor and beer down south of the atlanta airport tyler perry has renovated a massive facility 
to use for filming. And um, what's uh, the the Marvel Studios Pinewood Pinewood the big uh, facility in London has a facility south of Atlanta. They actually are partnered with Chick-fil-A on it. And Pinewood has decided to give up its investment in it. It wants to focus on London. Pinewood's had some internal difficulties. It was kind of interesting, actually. Uh, After Georgia, uh, after Brian Kemp signed the fetal heartbeat legislation here in Georgia, Pinewood Studios announced it was going to wind down its affiliation with the film studio south of Atlanta where all the Marvel movies had been done. Doctor Strange had been there, uh, Guardians of the Galaxy, the Avengers, Infinity Wars, all, all of those things were done there. Pinewood said it was stepping back, and the media said, see, see, it's the fetal heartbeat legislation calls it, and it turns out that wasn't the case. They are actually shutting down all of their facilities globally. They've had some business difficulties and partnership squabbling, and they got to focus on their London facility. Chick-fil-A is going to maintain uh, through its uh, through an outside real estate venture. Chick-fil-A will maintain it, or at least the Kathy family. But uh, Georgia does not have a cap on its tax credit, and every state, including California, has a tax on its um, has a cap on the tax credit. Georgia's does not, and now there are some members of the legislature saying, "Wait a second, we're in a booming economy, and the governor's asking state agencies to cut three to four percent of their budgets. Why?" When you look at the tax credit, uh, we could make up 3% of Georgia's budget with the money from the film industry if we got rid of the tax credit. Now, no one's proposing getting rid of the tax credit. Uh, But now, uh, let me read you this from the AJC. Governor Nathan Deal treated the tax credits awarded to film and TV production companies that do business in Georgia as a prized legislative accomplishment, routinely warning lawmakers not to even consider a threat to the program. As some lawmakers rumble about revisiting the costly program, his successor is taking a different approach. In an interview with the Atlanta Journal-Constitution, Governor Brian Kemp refused to rule out legislation that could seek changes with the lucrative credits, which cost the state an estimated $870 million in revenue in 2019. Legislators passed the film tax credit to start with, so if there are some that want to review it or have reservations about it or want to add to it, that certainly is their prerogative, and we'll be glad to work with them. The governor was responding to buzz about a Georgia Tech study on the impact of the film tax credit that's already set tongues wagging under the gold dome. Lindsey Tippins is one of the influential Republicans looking at reducing the credits. In an, interv- in an interview, Kemp said he'd hold judgment on those ideas until the report is released, and he chuckled at the idea of preemptively telling Tippins or other Republicans to steer clear of the credits. I don't know if I told them that, if they would even listen, he said. I guess probably said more than I need to have... I guess probably said more than I needed to have how supportive I've been of the, I, I, the AJC, I have no idea what they're, I'm reading it here. That I guess what he's trying to, or what the AJC mistranscribed is uh, he's been supportive of the industry. It's kind of hard to weigh in on something I haven't seen. I've been around long enough to know there's agenda driven reports and it's true. Now what all of this got started, just to put this in perspective, 
Uh, a Kennesaw State report from an economist, a respected economist at Kennesaw State, said that the state of Georgia, uh, the Department of Economic Development, has been overstating how much the film tax credits uh, produce in Georgia. Here's let, let me give you the, the the basic parameters here. It's been a while since I used to do this as a lawyer, uh, and I don't anymore, and, and I, I'm not an expert on the film tax credits, but essentially... You you produce a movie in Georgia and it costs X to to do the production in Georgia that you get to deduct that money uh, from your taxes. And it's actually it's Georgia taxpayers typically who do it. And, and essentially what happens is you have groups in Georgia that have started as investment deals. They'll cover costs for film industry up to a certain point, And then they will be able to take a tax credit for that amount of money and turn a profit. It's become, there's an investing angle in here. It's not just the cost of doing films. There's an investment angle here that doesn't really get appreciated. And and frankly, maybe I should have on Chris Burns or someone to explain this because uh, it, it is not in my wheelhouse. I've got several friends of mine in, in the film industry though, who do point out that there is film business that comes to Georgia because the tax credit in Georgia makes it financially feasible to do a film in Georgia instead of doing it in California where the costs have gotten out of control. It becomes very cheap to do it in Georgia. Georgia's become the number two film location in the country outside of California as a result of the tax credit. These film industry and TV studios, they save money on coming to Georgia. That's why there are so many production houses. At the same time, you also have to remember that there are more films and TV shows in production worldwide right now than there are sound stages. What that means is that if Georgia decided to not have as much of a tax credit as it has right now, the film and TV industry could not stop working in Georgia overnight because there isn't enough soundstage presence anywhere in the world to cover everything that Apple, Amazon, Netflix, Hulu, uh, the, the, the standard networks, HBO, uh, HBO Max, whatever they're calling it, all, all of the others, what they want to do. There's just there's simply not enough space available right now. So you get rid of the tax credit overnight and the film industry is not going away. Now, no one wants to get rid of the film tax credit in Georgia because they do recognize here. Here's the justification for it. A company comes into Georgia and they pay a million dollars in taxes in Georgia to do their, their film. Well, Georgia gives them a credit for that million dollars so they don't actually pay the tax. What then happens is they bring in caterers and the caterers have to pay taxes. The caterers would not otherwise have this work. So the caterers are generating economic uh, tax revenue for the state. They, they bring in extras. The extras get some small payment. Uh, they, they pay taxes on that small payment that generates income to the state. Uh, you get the, the, the drivers, you get the fuel tax, they're filling up their cars. Uh, so you get the fuel tax, you get all these other streams of tax revenue you would not have, but for the movie coming in. Now the argument from the economists, well, the argument from the film tax credit people is that Georgia makes so much money off of the taxes the caterer pays, the taxes the extras pay, the taxes that they get in the fuel tax, the taxes that all the other employees get in the income tax, that that exceeds the amount of money Georgia is saving. So, so this AJC report says, for example, um, it costs the state $870 million in revenue. 
But what the film industry would argue is that so many people get employment and so many jobs are created that even though they don't get the $870 million in taxes from the film industry, they're getting $870 million plus from all the other stuff that was created. A lot of people in government take a a, a zero-sum game on this. So the film industry, we're losing $870 million on them. We get rid of the tax credit, they're going to pay $870 million. That's not true. You get rid of the film tax credit in Georgia, what you're going to see is a good portion of the film industry is going to disappear. So instead of the $870 million, you may get $10 million. Well, okay, the film industry in Georgia, we lose $870 million in the tax credit, but we gain a billion dollars overall. So a billion minus $870 million, uh, that, that difference is suddenly the amount of money Georgia is actually making overall in taxes. So it, it wounds up not only breaking even, but turning a profit for the state of Georgia because the, the caterer who now has a job, the, the painter who now has a job, the carpenter who now has a job, the uh, transport guy who now has a job, the transport company with the cars who now have jobs, the extras who have jobs, all those things wind up paying for the tax credit. Now, here's the problem. The tax credit is now $870 million in 2019. Georgia doesn't have a cap. And because Georgia doesn't have a cap, that number goes up every year. And at some point, there's a diminishing returns. You're not actually creating as many jobs in the state and generating as much economic business in the state as you are losing. So what Lindsay Tippins and others in the state want to do is what every other state of the union has, has done, and that's set a cap on the film tax credit, on how much can be paid out. Now, my suggestion is this. Cap it where it is. If you want to scale it back a little, scale it back a little. But everyone agrees Georgia has a very large uh, tax credit right now, so set a cap. At, if, it, if it's $870 million in revenue that the state says it didn't get because of the tax credit in 2019, there's really not a lot of dispute that we're still generating more economic income for the state because of that film tax credit. So cap it at $870 million. Say no more. And anything, because we're still going to grow, the film industry in Georgia is going to continue to grow. And the reason the film industry in Georgia is going to continue to grow is, it, it, let's see, it, let me. I can't count them all, but there, there's Amazon, there's Hulu, there's Apple, there's Disney, there's Netflix, there's Universal, NBC, uh, there is, uh, the Comcast is universal NBC. There's HBO max from AT&T. There's going to be a new Showtime streaming service. You've got the CBS streaming service. Um, who else is out there? Uh, I guess ABC is Disney. So they don't count. FX is now Disney. So they don't count. Um, I'm missing several. There's that Pluto one. Uh, CBS is about to start a new one. That's also going to have a news component to compete with Fox news on the conservative side. Uh, there are several others out there. You've got all of these streaming services, many of them not just doing TV shows, but films. You've got Disney doing films, Apple doing films, Amazon doing films, Netflix doing films, Hulu doing films. You, you get my point. There's not enough space in the world right now to film all this stuff. So you cap the credit in Georgia where it is or even reduce it slightly. It's still going to be higher than anywhere else in the country. There's not enough film studio space in the entire world for these production houses to say, you know what, we're not going to go to Georgia now because they've capped their film tax credit. 
or the fetal heartbeat legislation. That, that, that's not deterring them from coming to Georgia. They're still going to come. But cap it. That's a reasonable, responsible thing to do. No one is in favor of getting rid of the film tax credit. Well, I, I would personally be in favor of it, I suppose, um, g- given the leftward slant of Hollywood and all the hipsters they bring in. But actually, that's not fair. Uh, I actually know a lot of people in the film industry here in Georgia who support the film industry who are deeply conservative and voted for Brian Kemp. And I don't want those people punished. Um, but I also think that uh, they're getting a really good deal and you put a cap on it, you, you might as well go forward. This is one of the many issues that the legislature is going to deal with. But it, it does come in light of this budgetary scenario where Georgia right now has the very best economy we've had in our history. We have the very lowest unemployment rate we've ever had in Georgia's history. And the state is still having to cut the budget because of revenue. Now, it is fair, and Democrats have pointed out, that the state did, in fact, pass a tax cut this past legislative session. The reason, though, that they passed that tax cut was not to cut taxes. It's just because of the way that you'll recall the federal government's uh, tax cut plan went through, if the state did not reciprocate by cutting state taxes yes the state would have had more income but it would have been because there would have been a huge tax increase on state taxpayers Um, because the federal government stopped allowing uh, taxpayers to offset what they pay in state taxes you know it used to be when you paid your federal income tax you could say oh i paid two thousand dollars to the state of georgia and so you could subtract that uh, from your federal income tax And now you can't do that. And so Georgia had to alter the way it assesses taxes in order to avoid over 50% of Georgians having a massive tax spike last year. That's why um, the Democrats are saying, well, the Republicans cut taxes. It didn't alter the revenue in Georgia. It just prevented a massive windfall from coming into the state from taxpayers because of the change in federal law. It wasn't an actual net tax cut. Uh, in fact, I know a lot of people who still wound up paying more in state taxes because of the assessment. But what Republicans are pointing to, what Lindsey Timpson is pointing to, is, is forget that. Nothing in Georgia's situation has changed dramatically in the past few years. We're having a massive economic explosion in the state. We're having massive employment in the state, and yet state tax revenue is stagnant. There must be some reason, and the reason he's pointing to is are the tax credits like the film tax credit. And by the way, it's not just the film tax credit. There are plenty of other tax credits in the state, including jet fuel and other things, that the state should look at. Georgia's legislature has been great at giving individual entities in the state tax credit. And that is impacting the bottom line. It is frankly ridiculous that state agencies are having to cut their budgets when the economy is booming because the state's not seeing revenue increase. And that suggests there's an underlying fundamental structural flaw in the way the state is assessing taxes right now. And a lot of that has to do with the tax credits that the film industry and others are getting. Again, though, We're not going to cut it. We're not going to get rid of it. No one wants to get rid of it. The governor would veto it if they got rid of the film tax credit. But putting a cap on it, that's common sense. All right. I got to pick on my hometown newspaper. (laughs) So I've got a column uh, here. For those of you listening statewide in Georgia or around the nation, I I live in Macon. Right smack in the heart of the state. Our flagship station is WGAU out of Athens. Uh, and then we're around the state. So I, I broadcast from a studio in Macon. It gets beamed to our Athens station. 
and then Athens spreads it, the glory across the state of Georgia. But there's a, a, a Chick-fil-A near me, and it has been open for 30 years. It was the 13th Chick-fil-A, freestanding Chick-fil-A built in the nation. In other words, a Chick-fil-A not in a mall. And uh, 10 years ago, they did a big 20-year renovation. They closed it down. Well, they're 30 years in, and they've decided to tear it. It's one of the old-school Chick-fil-A's. Uh, where they use that ugly modern, I hate ugly modern design, uh, and but they used that 30 years ago, so they're leveling it. Uh, they are going to completely clear the pad and rebuild the Chick-fil-A. <laughs> I fell out laughing when I saw the story in the Macon Telegraph, the headline, Macon's first Chick-fil-A will close while it's torn down and rebuilt. <laughs> I, I What part of being open goes with torn down and rebuilt. <laughs> I just, I had to laugh at that headline. Now I, I pointed it out to a friend of mine last night and he says, well, you know, those Chick-fil-A people, they'll be standing there serving lemonade on an empty lot and people will come by and form a line. It's like, well, you do have a point when the Chick-fil-A, those of you who live in middle Georgia, when the Chick-fil-A just off the interstate at Tom Hill senior making is leveled. Don't go by there. Uh, don't, don't try to go by there. It will not be open. Uh, go up to Bass Road to the one near my house. <laughs> Chick-fil-A will close while it's torn down. <laughs> you know, but you can see the Chick-fil-A zealots um, who, who are out there. Listen, I, I love I love Chick-fil-A. All, all the, the criticisms of Salvation Army and, and whatnot, notwithstanding, I, I, Chick-fil-A is a great restaurant. It, 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 wonderful people who work there. And it, it really has always had this cult following. And I can totally see someone tearing down a Chick-fil-A and the Chick-fil-A workers still show up if only to tell people my pleasure as they drive past. It is a committed workforce of, of good people and good food. Now we will move on from, I just, I, I had to share uh, John Ossoff. You remember him. John Ossoff ran for the U S house. He lost. What is it? Just as an aside, just as an aside, have you noticed that the media fixates on a group of Democratic losers. And I don't mean that disparagingly. It's just they lost. Uh, and turns them into conquering heroes. Stacey Abrams, for example, lost the governor. Stacey Abrams never got above the uh, state house leader in Georgia. She lost the governor's race. She's never done anything else. And yet she's heralded as hailed as a conquering hero. John Ossoff lost a race, a special election for the 6th Congressional District in Georgia, and the media and Democrats together are hailing him as a conquering hero. He's raised a million dollars in the last three months uh, to run against David Perdue. David Perdue in the last three months raised $2.4 million. And he uh, Ossoff is the, the national media. He's like, oh, Ossoff, Ossoff, he's our man. If he can't do it, no one can. You've got Teresa Tomlinson, uh, the, the, the ladder climbing mayor from Columbus, you got Ted Terry, the, the hipster progressive mayor from Clarksville, Georgia. And you've got John Ossoff, a man who's never been elected to anything in his life. And, uh, Sarah Riggs Amico, who was the Democrats, Lieutenant Governor, Governor's uh, candidate who ran a statewide race in 2018. And then Ossoff is now because he's raised a million dollars. He's, I mean, he does have access to money from Hollywood and others who remember him and want to help him. But the Democrats, they keep propping up the same people who can't win elections and wondering why the results are no different.
I don't even need to read a script for this. Uh, the Quip is my sponsor this week for the podcast, and I don't need to read a, a script because I'm a user, and I've been a longtime user of Quip. I love Quip. If you don't know what Quip is, it is an uh, electric toothbrush. It only takes just a AAA battery, and they send you the AAA battery, so you don't even have to get a AAA battery. Every three months on a subscription, you can get a new brush head to keep your brush head up to date. It pulses every 30 seconds, so you get an even clean for two minutes in your mouth. It turns itself off. It's just so well-designed, and it's very reasonably priced compared to a lot of toothbrushes out there on the market that compete with it. You can go to getquip.com slash Eric right now. You'll even get your first brush head refill pack for free. So you get your first brush head refill pack for free at getquip.com slash Eric. That's G-E-T-Q-U-I-P.com slash Eric. Get in the healthy habit of brushing your teeth the way your dentist wants. Make it easy by getting a Quip. Quip electric toothbrushes. My wife uses it. I use it. My kids use it. It really is that good. You will like it in your family, and you will make sure you get a great clean. Join 3 million healthy mouths by getting Quip today for just $25 at getquip.com slash Eric. Hello and welcome. It is the final hour of the day. Oh, you've got me all week. It's Eric Erickson here. The phone number you want to call in, be a part of the program, 877-97-ERIC, 877-973-7425. We're going to leave the world of politics, well, slightly leave the world of politics. Uh, we, we'll, we'll come back. We'll circle back to everything. Uh, yeah, I, I do have to read you this tweet that this is the Associated Press. This is like reading from The Onion or The Babylon Bee. This is an actual tweet. Don't get mad at me. I'm just reading you what the Associated Press says. Iran's Supreme Leader, Ayatollah Ali Khamenei, wept openly at the funeral for General Qasim Soleimani. His tears give insight into how the death of the commander killed in a U.S. strike is being felt personally by the Supreme Leader. Again, let me read this. His tears give insight into how the death of the commander killed in a U.S. airstrike is being felt personally by the Supreme Leader. <laughs> and. <laughs> So Jeffrey Epstein, Bin Laden, and Soleimani walk into a bar, and the bartender says, oh, nope, you're still in hell. <laughs> Sorry. Oh, my goodness. Yep, it's Soleimani and Epstein. They got something in common. They didn't kill themselves. <laughs> all right, all right. We'll move, we'll move on to more serious matters here. Oh, the, the media meltdown just reminding us who these people are. I was actually, I, I was trading emails with a friend of mine last night who you would all know. And in the conclusion of our of our email exchange, he he says, you know, these people continue to uh, how is it that the, these people continue to remind us they are who we've always known they were. And he was absolutely right. Uh, in about an hour, many of you will probably hear him discussing this on his radio program. <laughs> um, OK. So, serious topic, uh, completely off of politics. The United Methodist Church, I, I, I do want to spend time on this topic. The United Methodist Church has decided to split. Uh, a, a divorce essentially is happening, and they're trying to say it's amicable, but it really actually isn't that amicable at this point. 
the Methodist Church has been uh, breaking apart at the seams slowly over the last decade because of the issue of gay marriage. Uh, it is actual biblical orthodoxy, and this is going to get some of you mad, I realize, who are listening. Um, I, I'm, this is, uh, the reason I went to seminary is, is to be able to have these discussions with you and, and be informed in them. It is orthodox Christianity and very biblical that marriage is between a man and a woman. Uh, in Genesis 1, God makes man, and he makes man male and female. And then he joins them together in marriage and tells them what? To tend the garden, to be fruitful and multiply. Uh, they're supposed to have kids and they're supposed to tend the garden. There's this random movement among some people in, in Western churches now that we should stop having kids. And it really is mostly mainline progressive churches that are already dying out. Uh, stop having more people to fill the pews. Uh, and that's contrary to the command in Eden from God to be fruitful and multiply. When uh, the world is destroyed and flood and Noah is on the ark and then gets off the ark, uh, God tells Noah and the family after they get off the ark to be fruitful and multiply. He, he tells them to fill the earth. Uh, it, it, is, it is biblical to have kids. It is biblical to multiple to, to grow the church. You know, you, you don't just disciple people and, and witness to people and bring them into the church. You also have children, and you grow the church from your family. Um, but uh, the, the Methodist church has, uh, on this issue of family and marriage, uh, been breaking apart on the issue of do they ordain uh, homosexuals to be ministers, and do they openly homosexual, and do they perform gay weddings? As you can imagine... Uh, the the more educated and wealthier white uh, American United Methodists are in favor of it, and those American uh, white Methodists who are not upper-income liberals are opposed, and then the Methodists have done a very good job of evangelizing abroad in the Philippines and Africa, and those uh, United Methodists have the audacity to take the Bible at its word, and so they're opposed to gay marriage. Uh, it is only the Methodists in this country who no longer believe the Bible is the in inerrant word of God who are totally okay with getting rid of the things the Bible says about how to live a moral life. Uh, they, they've decided they can do it better. Uh, you know, it really is just as a random aside, progressive Christianity in this country. Um, uh, Michael Kruger, he's the president at RTS, Reformed Theological Seminary in Charlotte. He's got a new book out called The Ten Commandments of Progressive Christianity. And essentially, he points out that uh, in J. Gresham Mansion in 1923 was professor at Princeton Seminary. He wrote Christianity and Liberalism. And he was. Uh, it, this was in 1923. Manchin was writing about the rise of liberalism in mainline denominations, and he said that liberal understanding of Christianity was not a variant version of Christianity. It was a different religion altogether. It was essentially a moralistic, therapeutic version of faith that questions uh, values, questions over answers, and being good over being right. You're supposed to live your life as a good person not as a person who's right uh, in the sense that you're connected to God uh, the way he decides right and wrong is. God is the ultimate authority on truth and what is right and what is wrong, and we're supposed to live our life this way. Well, this has been playing out in mainline denominations across the country. Uh, the Episcopalians, uh, the Presbyterians, the United Church of Christ, the mainline denominations, the Evangelical Lutherans, all of these denominations have something in common. They are all declining 
as the mainline denominations in the country decline, uh, one of the things they have in common is they've embraced progressive Christianity. Uh, even some of the, the the cooperative Baptist churches that, you know, the, the Baptists now have the Southern Baptist Convention and the cooperative Baptists. The co- cooperative Baptists are the liberal Baptists. Uh, and there are several others, even more fringy uh, Baptist groups out there, but they're all in decline. And essentially, you don't need to go to a church. If you believe that uh, the Bible is just a good philosophy in which to govern your life, there are plenty of good philosophies in which to govern your life, and you don't have to go to church on Sunday and engage in corporate worship of a God when you can just stay home and, and, and read a Joel Osteen book or whatever you want. Watch a football game, and if you get value and satisfaction in living your life that way, why go to church? And consequently, these mainline denominations are all in decline because they're therapeutic, self-help, question all things, and we should all be questioning everything, and and we should be communing with nature. There's no point. I mean, the Unitarian Church, for God's sake, says you can believe in anything as long as you believe in nothing. Uh, There's a reason these are shrinking denominations. It is actually the evangelical denominations in this country that believe that God is real, Jesus Christ is real, and the book of the Bible, the Bible and 66 books are the inerrant word of God that tell you how you're supposed to live your life because you're supposed to be more Christ-like in life, and that is the path to salvation and the only way to salvation. These churches continue to thrive. Uh, These churches are the ones that show growth. The United Methodist Church is now in this battle, and it has decided to split. It has decided to split because the rich white Americans Americans have decided uh, they no longer want to be bound by the Bible, and they want to do the things the Bible says that can't be done. Uh, Openly, the Bible, whether you agree with it or not, the Bible's very explicit. Homosexuality is a sin. A lot of other things are too, but on this issue is where the Methodist Church has drawn its line. It'll agree in the in Corinthians, Second Corinthians, that or First Corinthians, that adultery is a sin and drunkenness is a sin. It'll no longer agree with homosexuality. They've decided to redact the parts of the Bible they disagree with, and the result has been that African Methodists churches and Filipino Methodist churches and other third world churches have been joining with conservative white Christian Methodists in this country to maintain biblical orthodoxy. And it is an increasingly uh, hostile fight within the UMC. So they're going to part ways. Now, interestingly enough, uh, the Methodists passed a plan this past year that said that if a church no longer wants to maintain biblical orthodoxy, they can just they can keep their property and part ways with the UMC. Well, obviously, it was the good white uh, liberals in America who thought that was untenable, that it should be the conservatives who were thrown out of the United Methodist Church, not the other way around. And they, they've been fighting for, for the last year since that vote. Well, they finally came to a compromise. And the compromise is that if you're a, a Methodist who actually believes in the Bible— and you don't want to have gay marriage and gay pastors, then you can get out. And you can take your church, you can keep your property, you can get some money and just go start something new. That's what's going to happen. It's sad to see, but it's also a good thing. Uh, The Episcopal Church has been fighting its congregations over this issue for a number of years. The Episcopal Church is on the verge of bankruptcy. It is essentially now a real estate company. Uh, There have been a number of surveys based on the the decline in the Episcopal Church showing that the last Episcopalian in the United States has already been born. The church has negative growth. It's holding on to some impressive properties. Uh, But, I mean, as an example, the Falls Church in Virginia is one of the noted 
uh, Episcopal churches in the nation that was conservative, and it decided to leave the Episcopal church and, and affiliate with the Anglican communion, uh, which is different from the Episcopalians. The Anglicans are the, the conservative wing in the United States, the uh, no-gay marriage wing of the Episcopal church. And so the Episcopal church took their property back. It was a nasty lawsuit. The Anglicans wound up losing, and, and the Episcopal church revoked their um, property, their their church. And the bishop of the Episcopal church actually went on record and said that they'd be happy to sell it to anybody as long as it wasn't them, as long as it wasn't the church. Uh, it was deeply hostile. It was a deeply hostile divorce. And this has been happening within the Episcopal Church. No grace. I mean, for God's sakes, the old bishop of the Episcopal Church said that 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 Paul abused a woman by casting a demon out of her. She was that woman was nuts. Um, but in any event, uh, the UMC breaking up now. This has cultural and political impact. It, it actually does. Uh, I, I said I wasn't going to go politics here, but there actually does. There is more and more polling in this country that has done worse and worse when it comes to describing who an evangelical is. The Methodist church is considered a mainline church. Now, how did the mainline churches get that name? Who are the mainline churches? The mainline churches are uh, the evangelical Lutherans, the Episcopalians, the Presbyterians, uh, PCUSA, Presbyterian Church of the United States of America, uh, the Methodists, uh, the United Church of Christ, and there's one more. Um, I've mentioned the Lutherans. Um, United Church of Christ, it may be one of the churches of God. I, I can't remember. Anyway, um, no, maybe that's it. Now, the reason they get that is because there was the, the main line was the, the rail line in Philadelphia. And church communities, the communities in Philadelphia at the time of the main line were divided essentially around their churches. So you had an enclave of Episcopalians, you had an enclave of Lutherans, you had an enclave of Methodists, you had an enclave of, of Presbyterians, and, and that rail line went through all those neighborhoods. And so it was described, those were described as the main lines. They were the original denominations within the United States. So the Baptists were not there. Um, the PCUSA or the PCA that I'm I'm in sprung out of the PCUSA in response to the PCUSA's liberalism. It used to be the Presbyterian Church. Uh, United States, uh, and now it's the Presbyterian Church in America and the PCUSA, and my goodness, there are all sorts of other smaller uh, Presbyterian groups, the ARP, the Orthodox, the Evangelical Presbyterians. Presbyterians, basically, they, they just split and, and form new denominations all the time, much like Baptists split and form new churches all the time. you got the First Baptist, the Second Baptist, Third Baptist, the, the, the Infinity Baptist Church. Uh, so the Baptists, the the PCA, the the Anglicans now, and now this new group of of Methodists, the, the Pentecostals, the Assemblies of God, and others, they're considered evangelical churches. They are churches that believe in in the fundamentals of the Bible. That the Bible is the inerrant word of God. It is to be taken literally where it is to be intended, interpreted literally. Jesus Christ had a physical birth of a virgin and a physical resurrection from the grave. Those sorts of things. The mainline church is more and more getting away from that. The problem is that there are a lot of people who self-identify as evangelical in this country, but they don't go to church. It has become an ethnic identifier. There are a lot of evangelicals who, when you ask them where they are on a Sunday, they're in their bass boat out on Lake Tobosofki or Lake Sinclair or Lake Oconee or, or Lake Burton or uh, any of the other lakes in Georgia, Lake Blackshire, uh, and they're out fishing on a Sunday. 
It's an ethnic identifier, much like the media uses Catholic as an ethnic identifier these days. Uh, Catholics tend to be uh, Northerners who identify as, as having some church background. Jews identify as an ethnic background these days, and, and Evangelical does. Here's the interesting data. The more a person regularly goes to church, the less like they, they look like the world. There are all sorts of Barna surveys and, and Pew surveys and others that show that evangelicals in this country have the same divorce rate as the rest of the country. Um, that they, they, they believe in pretty much the same things except when it comes to gay marriage and abortion. They identify exactly like everyone else in the world. And in fact, there was all that data in 2016 that showed that uh, evangelicals supported Donald Trump overwhelmingly uh, because they're essentially Southern conservatives. But what's so interesting is when you actually ask how regularly someone goes to church. Do you know that the more likely a person goes to church, the less likely they are to be divorced? The more regularly a person goes to church, the less likely they are to support immigration restrictionism. The more often a person goes to church, the less likely they are to believe in gay marriage. The more a person goes to church, the less likely they are to engage in cultural liberalism. The big difference between real evangelicals and, and self-described evangelicals are the ones who actually go to church and believe the Bible is the inerrant word of God behave completely differently from everyone else. So when you hear that the divorce rate among evangelicals is the same as, as non-churchgoers, that's true among self-described evangelicals. But among evangelicals who are in church every week, it's fundamentally not true. The people who go to church tend to believe in the Bible. And this is where we are with the United Methodist Church, the last of the mainline congregations in this country to embrace gay marriage. The UMC is going to divide, and the United Methodist Church is going to become the liberal wing of the Methodist Church in the United States that will support gay marriage and ordain gay ministers. And there are plenty of them saying, oh, it's not going to happen in my church. I'm going to stick with the UMC. It's going to happen. You will be made to care. And that will begin the decline of the United Methodist Church in this country. And what you will find is a very vibrant community of people who have left the UMC to maintain Methodism as their denomination, but leave the UMC over biblical orthodoxy. And that denomination is going to thrive. And you will see those people now not being identified anymore as mainline Christians, but that'll begin to shape the dynamics of who describes themselves as evangelicals in this country from the pollsters. And you'll start seeing that work its way into politics. It's going to be a fascinating dynamic to watch over the next three to five years. Hello there. Uh, so Alan Sanders uh, texted me and said that uh, I was laughing about the Chick-fil-A earlier uh, near me in Macon that it's going to be closed and torn down and uh, the newspaper headline was, hang on, let, let me get the headline right because I just found it very, very funny. Uh, the headline was Macon's first Chick-fil-A will close while it's torn down and rebuilt. Uh, and I thought, duh, of course it's going to close while it's torn down. But Alan texts me and he says, our Chick-fil-A uh, closest to us off Main Street in Cartersville did something similar. They raised the old building to the ground. It took four months to build the new one, but they had people set up from the store with limited menu items and hot box containers every day for lunch. And they had lines six days a week. That's just crazy. This is what I'm talking about. The commitment of the Chick-fil-A people. <laughs> One more thing on the the, the issue of, of evangelicals in America is actually a subject I'm, I'm deeply fascinated by, uh, being one, identifying as one, uh, being in seminary, uh, now preaching more than I, I've actually, I guess in the last year, I, I preached more uh, than, than spoke politically at events around the country. And um, 
one of the things that I find really interesting is there is this ongoing concern that evangelicals in this country, by siding with President Trump, are hurting their witness in this country. And there is some truth to that. The amount of people who become hostile to uh, many evangelicals because they see prominent pastors in this country, the Franklin Grahams and the Robert Jeffries of the world, who are uh, who always apologize. Anything Donald Trump says, remember, you had Robert Jeffries and, and Jerry Falwell Jr. and others out there after President Trump in 2016 defended Planned Parenthood out there say, well, yeah, they do do some good. Or they refuse to ever, or they refuse to ever be critical of the president, and so there are a lot of people out there who say that, well, this is going to hurt the church in the United States. The the tying the evangelicalism to Donald Trump is going to hurt the church. I don't want to dismiss that altogether, but I've always thought when people make these arguments that there's this thing. If you're a Christian, there's this thing called the Holy Spirit. And to say that uh, that Christians in America are going to hurt their witness, um, how are you going to hurt the Holy Spirit who works through people? And that, that's always been my frustration here is, is everybody, even the people who want to criticize evangelicals, they, they want to make it about themselves. Uh, they, they want to make it always about themselves. What, what about God and, and God's work through people? And God's still going to work through. The Holy Spirit's still going to work. So I don't know that there needs to be the level of panic that there is in these conversations about evangelicalism and the church and the president in this country uh, when God's got a plan. And maybe that's part of his plan. Maybe it's a judgment. I don't know. But he's certainly going to work still. <laughs> so- <laughs> oh, Mike Bloomberg's campaign, y'all. Mike Bloomberg, uh, he he's spending money furiously to 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 make a go of it in this Democratic campaign. Uh, his campaign just actually put out a tweet uh, from Team Bloomberg. Find someone who looks at you the way Mike looks at ribs, and it's got the uh, emoji with the the hearts for eyes, and when you actually open the picture uh bloomberg is actually these people are eating brisket there it's it's brisket it's there there are no ribs anywhere in the picture it's let's see these people this woman has uh, a sandwich and some brisket uh this guy has baked beans and looks like some slaw and a and he's eaten all of his brisket there, there, there are no ribs there. Maybe it's the Brooklyn barbecue. They, they've eaten so much Brooklyn barbecue that's supposedly taken over the world. And maybe in Brooklyn, they, they think that ribs and brisket are the same thing. Uh, wow. Wow, that's just pathetic. <laughs> oh, the, 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 the hipster, hipster media people. Hey, um, I mentioned the other day, and I, I want to circle back to this because I only mentioned it briefly. You are your children are probably using an ad, and the odds are it's your kids, it's your teens. Just, I'm going to go off on another tangent. Um, Facebook. Uh, Increasingly, Facebook is what 50, 60, and and 70-year-olds use uh, for social media. It is the the 30, 40, and 50-year-olds who will engage. Actually, Twitter is more diverse, but uh, when you get over 50, it declines very rapidly in the number of people who use it. But 30 and 40-year-olds use Instagram a lot. If you're in your, your 20s and your 30s, you're probably using Snapchat. 
And if you're in your teens and 20s, if you're not using Snapchat, you're using TikTok. And TikTok, uh, you you make uh, very short videos. There used to be a thing, there used to be a Twitter service called Vine. Twitter has ended its service in favor of something called Periscope that allows long-form video content. I'm broadcasting this show, for example, today on Facebook, YouTube, and, and Periscope for Twitter. Uh, but Twitter got rid of Vines, and Vines where you'd make these funny 15-second videos that they got a following. Ironically, now, if you want to watch all the Vines from Twitter, you go to YouTube and you watch them. My kids love to watch them. Uh, but the new thing, the, the replacement for Vine is this uh, app called TikTok. And you can make very funny, very quick little videos, and people develop these massive million people following on on TikTok, and they start making themselves very wealthy being TikTok famous. You've never heard of them. They've got millions of followers, and, and they start making money. There's a problem with TikTok, though, that your kids are using, and the American Defense Department has now banned the use of TikTok uh, in any Department of Defense facility. It is because TikTok was an American company that has now been bought by a Chinese company, and there's growing evidence to suggest that the Chinese military is behind TikTok now. And if you use TikTok, you are essentially handing your phone over to the Chinese surveillance state. Uh, there have been suggestions. That now, uh, in iPhone, Apple's iOS is way more secure than Android. I Now, full disclosure here, I am an, I'm an Apple user. I am in the cult. Uh, I love my iPhone. I love my Mac. I love my iPad. I love my Apple Watch. I love my Apple TV. I, I am totally down with the Apple cult. I, I, I love it. I, I do not love Apple News Plus. I canceled my subscription. I do not love Apple TV Plus. Uh, they are garbage subscriptions. There's just nothing worth paying for with Apple News Plus and Apple TV Plus. Apple Arcade, I've found some very fun games on there. But nonetheless, I'm in the Apple cult. I like my iPhone. One of the reasons I like iPhone is Apple values privacy and security. So for example, uh, my, my dear producer, Charlie, and I genuinely think it's despite me. I I really do believe that's what it is. He does. He has an Android device. He does not have an iPhone. And so when I text him, I have to see the, the offensive green chat bubble, the offensive green chat bubble. Those of you who have an iPhone, you know, if you're texting with all of your friends and they all have iPhones, you see a blue bubble. And the blue bubble means that you're using Apple's message service, which is highly end-to-end secure. Uh, you can send someone a, a password, a username, what have you, and you're you're not going to have it hacked because the Apple iMessage, and Charlie admits it is for spite, um, the, the iMessage blue bubble is highly secure. It's, it's more secure than email or text message. If you're on an iPhone and you send someone a green chat bubble, it means you're using standard SMS protocol, which is easily hackable, uh, easily determinable, and... And you, you do not uh, want to do that. And it's just, it's it's for spite. When I text my producer or something that should be private, I get this green chat bubble knowing that anyone could hack his Android device and find it. This is a very long-winded explanation. <laughs> Android just isn't as secure. And I don't mean that disparagingly. I do not mean that because I'm in the cult of Apple. It just isn't. It's based on Google protocols, many of which are open standards, and Google itself has a vested interest in harnessing this. Um, you hear people all the time who say, this is very weird. I was uh, 
Uh, I was talking to a friend of mine. I, in fact, this happened to me the other day. A friend of mine uh, texted me and said, I was just talking to a buddy about uh, uh, Chipotle, and now I'm seeing ads in Facebook uh, advertising Chipotle on his Android device. Or my, it happened with my sister, and she's actually got an iPhone, um, and where she was actually texting my oldest sister and me. My middle sister was texting my oldest sister and me about going to sleep, and she was on Instagram and suddenly saw ads for uh, insomnia. This is, I got to say, this is happening way too much for it to be coincidental. There's really got to be something going on because I know way too many people who have this happen. And you talk to the tech guys and they say, well, you were probably Googling it or, or, or something over the last couple of days and it takes a while the algorithm adjusts. And no, this is happening way too much. Uh, but it primarily happens in Android and TikTok now, uh, while your Apple device tends to be more secure than your Android device, the Chinese have been apparently, allegedly, I should say allegedly, working in some of these services like TikTok to feed the surveillance state in China American data. So if your child is using TikTok, the odds are the Chinese now have scanned your child's face and your child is in a database somewhere in China and they will keep that database up to date as they build their surveillance state. Uh, if your kid is talking about stuff on TikTok, the Chinese are compiling a database. If your child is doing something nefarious you don't know about, uh, you are um, your child is probably going to be in there. There actually is a, um, there is a story out very recently about people doing stuff on social media in China and the Chinese are now using that to blackmail those people within China or punish them. So, for example, the Hong Kong protesters in Hong Kong don't put anything on TikTok because it will be very easy for the Chinese authorities to come find them and round them up and make them disappear. It's, it's a real, real problem. And I touched on it a little bit the other day, just noting that the Defense Department has decided to ban TikTok from all military installations. Uh, and now I'm seeing more stories on this over the weekend and this morning. There's more out about it uh, that the Pentagon is taking TikTok to be a serious security threat because of the Chinese. And what is so ironic are the number of people in this country whose kids are using TikTok right now, uh, which is part of the Chinese surveillance state, according to the Pentagon. So, uh, uh, be advised if your kid's using TikTok, uh, you probably want to have a chat with them about the Chinese surveillance. I don't know how you as a parent, um, Johnny, I, I, I see your cute little TikTok with the firecrackers. You need to know that the Chinese are putting you in a database now. They're they're doing a, a scan of your face and they're going to be able to track you for the rest of your life. And when you do something embarrassing 20 years from now, they're going to be able to pull out this video on TikTok and embarrass you even further. I mean, so here's the thing. There's... There was a story. Oh, where was it? Where was it? Where was it? Where was it? It, was, it wasn't the Wall Street Journal. It was one of the tech sites. Um, maybe it was one of the Vox sites. So, so one of the things that people use for Snapchat now, and apparently I, I, I don't use TikTok. If you come to my house, TikTok is blocked in my house because of these concerns. Uh, and I've had them for a while with TikTok, and I don't want my kids using it. But they're, they're like, even in Instagram, there are direct message services. Uh, you can direct message people. And Snapchat is being used. Instagram is being used some. And, and apparently TikTok is being used for, for trading in illegal items, um, uh, whether it's drugs or guns or what have you. And if you're doing it through the TikTok service, the Chinese, of course, are compiling all the stuff. And you could very well one day have your your child who was uh, buying weed or a gun on, on TikTok suddenly be blackmailed by the Chinese in a future life. 
Uh, I just uh, you got to be careful with these services, and it's like remember the 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 facial scanning app. People were putting up the their aged pictures. They would scan their face and they would put it on Instagram and say, "Hey, this is what I'm going to look like in 50 years." It turns out it was a Russian service, and if you re- read the terms of service, you were actually allowing the Russians to go through your entire photo archive on your phone's library and take all of your pictures. And they said, "Oh no, trust us. We're not going." Yeah, right. Yeah, I tell you, the world is coming to you and at you through your phone these days. Your phone is, I, I actually, I encountered a pastor recently who does not use social media and does not use email. He's apparently very proficient with texting on his phone, and he has an old school phone. He will not use a high-tech smartphone. He will not use email, and he will not use social media. And the reason is, he one, he thinks it interferes with his ministry, that it's all a distraction. And two, he is increasingly convinced that that is how the world comes to get you, that the world now gets you addicted to technology, and you sit around all day looking at memes on your phone, and you don't pay attention to the world around you anymore, and he doesn't want to fall into that. Uh, also, apparently, he doesn't use email because he got an email account about 10 years ago and mentioned it in a sermon, and thereafter, a bunch of people emailed him to, to pick apart his sermon that he had said, and, and he was so horrified by people having that ready access to him to be able to, to do that that he shut down his email and has never had email since. But you're, you're on notice here. I have helped educate you. Now, let us move on to the Australian wildfires. My wife has been paying attention to the Australian wildfire situation because uh, my wife quilts, uh, and one of her favorite quilters is in Australia. And the wildfires in Australia are a really big deal. There are some reports. The media is making this all about climate change and that climate change is sparking this. You do need to know Australia is having a very hot summer. And it this is their, their drought season. This is their dry season. Uh, but it is way drier than usual. And you do need to understand that the progressives in Australia and the media in Australia have totally bought into the extremes of climate change. You know, I have more and more come around on the issue of climate change in the last 10 years to the fact that, yes, the world is warming up. Um, but I also believe that there's increasingly, yes, humans are involved, but it's also we are amplifying a natural feedback loop to begin with, and the world is going to cool down again, uh, although we are definitely going to contribute to it not cooling down as much as it otherwise would have. I, I Listen, I'm, I'm willing to say that, yes, the world is getting warmer. Yes, there is climate change. Yes, we play a role, although not nearly as significant as a lot of people would have you believe, and that I don't care. And it's the last part that makes people's heads explode because I don't care. I do think there are two, there are 7 billion of us on the planet. Clearly we have a role to play in a symbiotic relationship around the planet. But at the same time, I don't care about it. Uh, I do believe that we will evolve and adapt. We're highly adaptable creatures. We can certainly do something. But in, in Australia, the media and progressives in Australia have gone all in on climate change. And everything in Australia is now about climate change. I read something the other day that, that there have been a number of people who have been arrested in Australia for starting some of these fires. The fires have all joined together. There is no rain there. So it doesn't look like it was climate change that started the fires. It looks like arson has started the fires. And that's gone underreported. Here's the thing you need to understand, though, about this. The progressives in Australia were set to win their last election. And they were running 
on a massive agenda about climate change. It was going to be a huge, huge, they were going to impose a carbon tax on the Australians. They were going to do massive things to cripple the Australian economy and drive up costs on Australians, all to fight climate change. They were ahead in the polls until the conservative government in Australia turned this issue on its head and said, if the, if the Labor Party gets in, the progressives get in, they're going to drive up your cost of living, they're going to make you get rid of your air conditioner, they're going to do all of these things that punish you for living a comfortable life. And the Australian people went to the polls and they put the conservatives back in office. The media in Australia is as partisan as the American media. It is as biased as the American media. They hate the Murdochs in Australia as much as they hate the Murdochs in this country in the media because they're kicking their butts. The, the Rupert Murdoch media chains are, are dominant in Australia, just like Fox News is here. And the Australian leftists hate them. And so everything they blame on Rupert Murdoch, every climate change is, is Rupert Murdoch's fault. He's the, the Koch brothers are the boogeyman of the America in the United States. Rupert Murdoch is in Australia. It's ridiculous. But the media in Australia now has every incentive to amplify all the news stories about climate change. And the American media is now echoing these stories because it's payback to those hicks and rubes that voted for the conservatives. Just like the media in this country goes after Trump voters, the media in Australia hates the people who returned the conservatives to power. So you're hearing so much about climate change and so little about arsonists and the way the fires actually started because the media in Australia is desperate for an I told you so moment against the conservative government. So much much of the coverage in Australia is driven by politics, and it's not really driven by the environment. They want to masquerade as it being driven by the environment, but they are out to get the conservative government in Australia, and it's shaping the news cycle in this country. So when you hear the news in this country, and it's, oh, Australia, it's, it, the whole country's on fire, and it's global warming, and you got to remember, those fires were not caused by global warming. Something caused the spark that caused the fire. We're not getting a lot of those stories. What we're getting is the Australian government, it's they're the blame. They're to blame because they haven't taken action that the progressives would have taken if they came to power. It's sad that we're seeing this, whether it's the commentary and the reporting on Iraq and Iran in this country or the climate change agenda. The media has gone so far left, the narrative has, been more, has become more important than the truth. The facts are ancillary to advancing the progressive agenda. And increasingly, it really is hard to know who to believe in this country. I spend my, the majority of my research for my radio shows now and what I write at The Resurgent going through and determining, is this true? And if not, trying to educate people on the fact that it's fake. Here's the real news. Here's the real story. And the media, they have become their own worst enemy and they don't even realize it. So a buddy of mine who lives out on the left coast sent me a, um, a news story out of the Middle East, uh, the, the I'll monitor the pulse of the Middle East. And uh, let me just read you. Well, well there's a summary here. The, the article's over. The headline is Top Commander's Assassination Leaves Iran with Very Few Options to Retaliate. Uh, following Qasim Soleimani's assassination in Iraq, there has been heightened concern about an Iranian reaction. But due to Tehran's economic hardship, decreased support from the public in Middle East societies, and international isolation, Iran isn't likely to seek revenge militarily against the United States. Not only Iraqis, but the whole world was shocked by the assassination. I, I'm not going to call it an assassination. The, the death 
of the commander of Iran's Islamic Revolutionary Guard Corps, Quds Force, Qasim Soleimani, and his right-hand man, Abdul Mahdi al-Muhandis, who was the deputy head of Iraq's popular mobilization units. This event, without a doubt, will change the map of conflict in the region. The attack took place around 1 a.m. on January 3rd near the Baghdad International Airport. Soleimani had just arrived in Baghdad and had gotten into a vehicle, but his convoy was struck by drones before it had left the airport grounds. Soleimani, Mohandas, and six other PMU figures were killed immediately. A few hours later, the IRGC announced that four other IRGC generals were killed in the attack as well. This presence of this number of important people altogether indicates that they had been planning something very big, probably against the U.S. after the latter attack on PMU bases in northern Iraq and Syria. This was what U.S. officials confirmed as well. U.S. President Donald Trump said we took action last year to stop a war, and Lindsey Graham, one of Trump's main congressional advisors, called the operation a preemptive defensive strike plan to take out the organizer of attacks yet to come. The operation was very well planned, organized, and executed. The U.S. had access to sensitive information and likely had been tracking Soleimani's movements and activities for some time. Now, let's fast forward here. The the reaction of the Iraqi public was not as strong as Iran might have expected. The president, prime minister, and most of Iraq political parties, including Sunnis, Kurds, and Shiites, uh, only denounced the event. Meanwhile, top Shiite cleric Ayatollah Ali al-Sistani, during his Representative Friday sermon, condemned the assassination and called it a breach of Iraqi sovereignty, yet he called upon all parties to have a high degree of patience. In Iran, the government called for mass protests to support the regime, uh, but it turns out that so many of their top people were taken out in the attack that they're not exactly sure how they will do it. In fact, this again, this is from Al Monitor, the, the uh, Middle Eastern Survey Group. The economic hardship in Iran, in addition to the challenges the government is facing internally, would not allow Tehran to increase tension. Iran's past conduct against Israel's strikes on Iranian bases in Syria also shows it will not seek revenge if its national security and interests are in danger. It all indicates Iran and its proxies will most likely not seek revenge in the near future and in Iraq in particular would not lead Iraq to fall into a civil war or mass destruction because it would lose even more in Iraq if it takes such a risk. Iran is also very unlikely to push its Iraqi political forces to go ahead with legislation asking U.S. troops to leave the country as this would raise strong objections from Kurdish and Sunni forces. Now, um, this guy is, who wrote this is a former teacher in Iranian universities and seminaries in Iran and Iraq. He's published several articles related to the Middle East. He specializes in religion, Ali Mamouri. Listen, I think Iran is going to respond, but I do think this is an interesting take in that I think this guy's probably right that we have thrown Iran into disarray. They're going to have to regroup, and their top men have all been taken out now. So how exactly are they going to respond? You listen to the American media, it sounds like they're going to come here tomorrow and go to war, and that's just not true.